Last week, you know that we began a series on money, riches, generosity, and greed called Kingdom Economics. Kingdom Economics, and as the name totally suggests, that money, economics, that's a kingdom issue. That's not secular or none of God's business. That is a profoundly spiritual issue. Meaning how you think about and spend money, and by that I mean God's money, is a window to the heart. That's a barometer to the soul. That's a diagnostic issue of the deepest part of our lives that reveals exactly what it is you love and live for the most, be it God or be it money. And yet, like a nun at a biker bar, money can feel a little out of place in the church, right? And it's kind of awkward. Have, have you seen a nun at a biker bar? <laughs> Am I not wrong in my comparison? <laughs> but, but the point, is, the point is, is that money feels a little out of place in the church, doesn't it? It's kind of awkward. It doesn't really seem to fit. It feels a little seedy and slimy to talk about money. Plus, plus, it's not the place of the church nor of the pastor to tell you what you can and cannot do with the money that you've worked so hard to obtain, right? The problem is, the problem with that is, is that it's not actually our money. It's God's money. He is the owner. We are but stewards. He has the right to shepherd our souls and tell us exactly what we can and cannot do with the very money that he has provided. And in fact, that's the very thing he does in the pages of Holy Scripture. Like a lot. Like 800 times a lot, God speaks with great clarity and gravity and force and power about money and possessions and generosity. And for whatever reason, we tend only to remember the negatives. We tend only to remember the dangers and the threats, right? Solomon sold his soul for women and cash and barely lived to tell the tale. Judas went to hell for a pocket full of change. The love of money is a root of all the evils. Keep your lives free from the love of money. No one can serve two masters. He who trusts in his riches will fall. And on and on the Bible goes. These warnings about money. And that's right. That is in the Bible. That is what the Bible says. It's just that... It's just that that's not all it says. Because what if there was a way, follow me now, what if there was a way to use God's money in such a way that would not only advance God's plan, but increase your joy forever? What I mean is, what if money could be used to obtain, get this, eternal treasure in the life to come that would never dwindle nor be depleted? What if we could leverage God's money in this life in such a way that not only, not only would it reach lost people with the gospel, but even increase in eternal reward that satisfies the longings of the soul? What if that were the case? Because guess what? That's exactly what Christ says in our text this morning. 
namely that riches and greed and anxiety and generosity are issues of the soul, but not only that, that how you use God's money in this life has the potential to accumulate eternal treasure in the next. That money is not only a risk. Money is not only a danger and threat to the soul, but rather it is a tool to advance God's plan and to increase your joy forever. And it all began one day when Christ was in the middle of a sermon. And when he paused to take a breath, some loudmouth in the crowd interrupted him and asked him to intervene in a family squabble about money. And Christ wouldn't touch it. He was not about to get caught up in some he said, she said family drama in fights over an inheritance. Instead of that, with his sovereign penetrating gaze, he peers right down into this very man's soul and exposed something that definitely needed to be exposed, namely greed, coveting and greed. In other words, what this was was a perfect teaching opportunity to talk about something that sloshes around in everybody's soul. And how he does that is he tells a parable. A parable about a man who had it all, who lost it all, who went to eternity with nothing and get a load of this. The problem with the man in the parable is not that he was rich, but that he was not rich towards God. In other words, he didn't invest it. He didn't use wealth that God had given to obtain eternal treasure and reward. And that's precisely what this chapter is all about right there. Not just the threats and the dangers of covening and greed, but how to be freed from greed to earn for eternity. How to get our hands on eternal treasure and reward that never loses value, that never runs out. Because as your pastor, that is exactly what I want for you. Namely, that you would see that your money is not your money, it is God's money, and that you should invest it, not in the stock market necessarily, but in the kingdom market, that you would increase your equity, that you would increase your assets, you would increase your capital and gain and savings, not for this life necessarily, but definitely, definitely for the age to come. It's called kingdom economics. And this morning, Christ is our teacher. He's our financial advisor. He is our investment banker. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text five implications. Five implications of the sovereign generosity of God that free us from greed to earn for eternity. That's where we're going. Five implications of the sovereign generosity of God that free us from greed to earn for eternity. This breaks down into three parts, so let's begin with, first, the illuminating interruption. The illuminating interruption, verses 13 through 15. Because today is a typical day in the life of Christ, which means lots of ministry, lots of preaching, lots of teaching, lots of people in the crowd who are listening. Chapter 11 tells us that there may have been up to thousands of people in the crowd Christ moves from village to village and the crowd continues to swell and swell as Christ inches his way to Jerusalem to finish what it is that he came to do, namely to be crucified for the sins of the world. And what's really interesting to me is that just before our passage, like immediately before, Christ is preaching on 
persecution. Persecution and courage and the cost of discipleship, and it's this sober and heavy sermon. I mean, they kind of hear a pin drop kind of moment when all of a sudden, as Christ pauses to take a breath, someone in the crowd speaks up and seizes an opportunity to get the teacher's help. Look at verse 13. And then someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I don't know if you remember those, that kid in high school or college who when he raised his hand to ask a question, it had nothing to do with the lecture, which clearly revealed that he wasn't listening to anything that he should have been listening. That's this guy. That's this guy right here out in La La Land. This dude is out to lunch. And yet, and yet what's really interesting, did you notice the title by which he addresses Christ? He calls him teacher. Teacher, which is fine, respectful, and true, but I find it very interesting that the only people who call Christ teacher in the Gospel of Luke are the Pharisees and unbelieving Jewish leaders. Everybody else calls him teacher, or everyone else calls him master and Lord, which I think could indicate that this man right here was an unbeliever. Like many professing Christians today, he wanted what Christ could give him to be sure, but he didn't want Christ himself. He didn't actually want Christ. You see, what was was a means. Christ was a tool. Christ was a way to get what he really wanted. And what he really wanted Christ to do was to intervene on some family feud over an inheritance. And if you have ever been involved in one of those, you know that those can be a nasty ordeal. And the situation likely, obviously we don't get many details, but likely the situation is that this is the younger brother and big brother has the power of attorney and little bro is not getting his piece of the family pie. So now here's his chance to get some free legal consultation from the teacher for this vexing family situation. And I love it because Christ won't take the bait. He won't even touch it. Look at verses 14 and 15. And he said to him literally, man, who appointed me judge or mediator over you? And he said to them, the whole crowd, watch out. And beware of all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in his possessions even when he has abundance. This is interesting. Because the exchange here between Christ and the man is not harsh per se. But it is firm and direct. The man blurts out from the crowd, Teacher, tell my brother. To which Christ re replies, Man, when did I become the attorney to deal with your family drama? Did you see a sign over my head that says inheritance, lawyer, free consultation? You know why you didn't see that sign? Because that's not my business. That's why. That's not my mission. That's why. I didn't come here for that. See, Christ was not even going to touch this because he did not come to the planet to settle petty family disputes, but to save eternal souls from the wrath of with his sin-bearing sacrificial death. And yet, and yet, this interruption, which was rude and inappropriate, was nevertheless highly illuminating. Because with his sovereign, all-seeing eyes, Christ sees something in the soul of this man that needed to be exposed and addressed and corrected. And look what he says in verse 15. And he said to them, speaking to the whole crowd now, watch out. Watch out and beware of all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in his 
possessions even when he has abundance. So you see the issue that's lurking beneath the issue, beneath the surface for Christ? Christ can see below the he said, she said, family drama and accusations of injustice and that the issue that really was at stake that needed to be addressed was not the greedy older brother withholding the inheritance, but it was the greed inside this man's soul. That was the issue. That's the bigger issue on the table for Christ here. In fact, that is the very issue that triggers everything that he's about to say into existence. I want you to notice something profound here because you notice that Christ says all covetousness, all covetousness, which means there's more than one kind. Comes in different shades, different forms, different shapes. There's all kinds of coveting and greed that on the surface doesn't seem like coveting and greed. It can even take the form of righteousness and fighting for your rights, just like this guy and his greedy older brother, which is exactly why Christ says, watch out and beware. You might be coveting and greedy and not even know that you are. Which, of course, raises the question, right? What does it mean to covet? What does that mean? Because whatever it is, it made the top 10, didn't it? The 10 commandments, number 10 on the list. Do not covet the house of your neighbor. Do not covet the wife of your neighbor or his slave or his female slave or his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So the question is, what does it mean to covet and why is it exactly so deadly and serious? But you have to understand, to, to covet is not just that you're a little jealous. It's not just that you're a little envious. Rather, to covet means that there's something you don't have that you want, you think you need, you believe you deserve, and at some level you are persuaded that it will satisfy the longings of your soul. That's coveting. Something you don't have that you want you think you need, you believe you deserve, and at some level you are persuaded that it will fulfill the deepest longings of your soul. Because you realize to covet, you understand, is this complex recipe of all kinds of things that, to be totally honest, are pretty serious, pretty dangerous. Because in the end, to covet, the sin of covetousness, you understand, is to accuse God on the one hand, and it is to insult him on the other. Isn't that true? When we covet, are we not accusing God? Subtly accusing him of being stingy and unfair? That, he, that we rightly deserve what he has wrongly given to others? And when we covet, do we not subtly insult God that he is not enough to satisfy the human soul? That there are objects in the world outside of God that supply a joy that he cannot. Isn't that what we're doing when we covet? It's exactly what we're doing. We accuse God and we insult God and we desire and crave an object that's not God as if it were God. And that is the real danger that Christ can see. He can see it, that God is being replaced question is, can you detect coveting of any kind in your life whatsoever? Can you see anything that possibly could qualify as coveting? 
Meaning, is there something that you don't have, that you want, you think you need, you believe you deserve, and at some level you are persuaded that it fulfills the cravings of the soul? Do you see any kind of coveting in your life? Is there, are there any desires in your life of which you should be incredibly suspicious? Because get this, in about 15 minutes, Christ is about to reveal the sacred secret that severs the root of coveting and greed. And if I were a betting man, I would guess that the secret he is about to reveal is going to shock and surprise you. The question we have to get to the bottom of, though, is why is coveting so sinful and dangerous? I mean, aside from its obvious idolatry, what is the issue that makes it so sinful and dangerous? And Christ tells us exactly what it is. Look what he says at the end of verse 15. He says, beware of all covetousness. Why? Why why is it a big deal? Why should we beware of that? Because, he says, one's life does not consist in his possessions even when he has abundance. There's the reason. Did you hear it? The reason why coveting and greed is not only foolish, but it's dangerous. is because the meaning of life has nothing to do with our possessions. That's what Christ means when he says life does not consist in what we own. That's not what life is about. I mean, it's the opposite of that bumper sticker, birthday card joke. Whoever wins with, whoever dies with the most toys wins. Remember that? Wins. Wins what? According to Christ, what that wins is the reward for biggest fool. Because you see, the issue is there is no connection between level of income and level of joy. Those have nothing to do with one another. Why? Because you weren't made for this present world alone. You were made by God, for God, to be satisfied in God, and what you obtain outside of God contributes nothing that isn't already found in God himself. I mean, it's like that quote from our liturgy last week. Do you remember? From the Puritan, the Puritan pastor, Jeremiah Burroughs, remember what he said? He said, my brethren, the reason why you do not have contentment in the things of the world is not because you do not have enough of them, but because they are not adequate to do for your soul what God alone is capable. That's what Christ is after. And never want to miss an opportunity to teach about eternity Off the top of his head, he spins this riveting illustration in which is found the deepest cure for coveting and greed, which brings us next to the insightful illustration. The insightful illustration, verses 16 through 21. Now let's watch the master go to work here to to show how foolish and crazy it is to try to find your deepest joy in, in what we accumulate, Christ preaches a parable to the whole crowd. And what a parable is, is a simple but potent weapon to drive home a point about life and eternity, about what does and does not satisfy the human soul, which is exactly what this parable is all about. So let's read the whole thing. Starting in verse 16, I'm going to read it. And as I do, here's, here's what your job is. I want you to be on the hunt for where this man went belly up in his theology. What lies did he believe? Where did his thinking go wrong? What was the problem with what this guy was thinking? Here's the parable. The land of a certain wealthy man was prosperous. And he was reasoning within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I don't have anywhere to gather my crops? 
And he said, this I will do. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones and I will gather there all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good things laid up for many years to come. Literally, relax, eat, drink, rejoice. And God said to him, fool, this very night your soul is demanded from you. And what you have prepared, whose shall it be? Conclusion, so it is the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. There it is. One of the deepest cures to coveting and greed found in that parable right there. And this parable seems simple on the surface. Trust me, it is profound. So let's start with the setup in verse 16. Notice what Christ says. Here's the setup of the scene. He says, the land of a certain wealthy man was prosperous. That's it. There's the scene. A wealthy landowner, a, a savvy entrepreneur who had an exceptionally good year. So good, in fact, that as we're about to see, he needed bigger banks to hold his money. And he was so set for life that he never needed to work again. That's the scene. And we hear that. Well, that's great. Good, good for him. I mean, golly, I mean, sit back, relax, retire early, savor what you've accomplished, my friend. I mean, this is the Jerusalem dream here. The problem is he didn't actually accomplish anything, did he? Because did you notice Christ's very carefully worded explanation of the scene? This is, this is subtle, but it is real. Notice, it was not actually the man that was prosperous, was it? What does Christ say in the text that was prosperous? The land was prosperous. The land made the guy wealthy. It was the lavish, over-the-top abundance of the land that made the guy a millionaire. He just happened to be there and cash in on the profit. And I think what the point is, what this was, was a gift. He didn't earn that. He didn't deserve that. He didn't make that happen. That was given to him. And by implication, it was given to him by God. And so now for money than he knows what to do with, he's now faced with a dilemma. A really good dilemma. What do I do with all my cash? He needs a plan and he makes one in verses 17 through 19. Look what he says again. And he was reasoning within himself saying, what shall I do? This is how do I have anywhere to gather my crops? Hmm, let's see here. Okay, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will build bigger ones. I will gather there all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good things laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, rejoice, be merry. There's the plan. Do you hear it? Retire early, build a mansion and spend the rest of his life in luxury, enjoying the riches he had obtained. That is a great plan. That is a fantastic plan. One that most financial advisors would be totally thrilled with. And yet, and yet, hearing the plan, weren't you a little concerned? As you heard his plan, were you not even a little bit disturbed? Something's not right here. So something's rotten in Jerusalem because did you notice how the man went about deciding on his plan? Verse 17, did you notice it says that he was reasoning within himself? 
about what to do with his millions, that's a real problem because that means that the only person he's considering in the matter is himself. And notice what he asks himself, what shall I do? Since I don't have anywhere to gather my crops. In other words, what am I going to do with all my money? Because that's what crops were, you understand? I mean, it's sort of like those gift cards that say treat as cash. You ever see that? That's what this was. This was cash. This was wealth. This was currency. He, he, this, was, this was food to live on as well as passive income. He could cash in on the royalties by selling these crops for the rest of his life. But he had so much money, he had no idea, nowhere to put it all. He had mountains of grain, which meant mountains of cash. He needed bigger banks to put it all. And notice, notice very carefully, I'm going to read this again. Notice very carefully how the man works through his little pickle of having far too much money to have. Notice what he says. What am I going to do? This I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will build bigger ones. I will gather there all my grain, all my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have got it so good, you are set for life. Do you hear that? I, I, me, my and mine, that's really concerning. That's very concerning. And do you notice the busy schedule that he's got planned for himself at the end of verse 19? (laughs) Literally, relax, eat, drink, and rejoice. That's the plan. That's the conclusion that he comes to after consulting the expert of his own mind. And that's really disturbing because the, the preponderance I, I, me, me, and mine reveals a very God-ignoring and man-centered perspective, doesn't it? I mean, you realize here that he, he consulted himself alone, and he came to the very conclusion that he already wanted to come to anyway. In other words, he wasn't being objective. He wasn't being wise. He wasn't being thankful. There was no prayer here. There was no consultation with the Mosaic law. He didn't consult any godly people. There's no consideration for eternity here. He is responsible only for himself. He is accountable only to himself. And so the question for you this morning, do you have that same kind of language that you use in your lives with what you feel are your possessions? I, I, me, my, and mine. Is it yours? Is it mine? Is it ours to do with as we please? So all this man wants to do is live in private luxury and spend the rest of his life enjoying what he thought was rightfully his, what he felt he deserved, and in the end, what he was persuaded would bring the most security and satisfaction to his soul. Wrong, 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 wrong. He had all of it wrong. All of his theology failed at every single point. This is the opposite of what Christ just said. Namely, that one's life does not consist in his possessions even when he has abundance. This man, like many today, was living in a dream world. Which, unbeknownst to him, was about to be shattered with a moment of reality. Because before this guy even has a chance to sit, sip his first margarita in celebration of his success, an unexpected visitor shows up to the and pronounces doom upon this man's soul. Look at verse 20. 
And God said to him, fool, you fool. This very night, your soul is demanded from you. And what you have prepared for yourself, whose will it be? Who's going to get it? Just like at the Garden of Eden, God shows up to the crime scene, delivers a personal message to the man with the plan. And again, notice, notice the first word out of God's mouth is fool. That's a big deal in the Bible to be called a fool. That's a really big deal. Because, because to be a fool, biblically speaking, it means that you have ignored what God has spoken and that you have decided to choose the path of short-term gratification for long-term destruction. That's a fool. To be a fool, biblically speaking, means that you are ruled by your cravings, ruled by your appetites, ruled by your lusts, which always lead to devastation in this life, if not destruction in the next. That is a fool. He is a fool. And did you notice the, the bitter irony of what God said to the man? Both God and the man talked about his soul. He said, soul, you have got it so good. And God said, tonight your soul is demanded from you, which very clearly means tonight you're going to die. You will not wake up for breakfast tomorrow morning. Instead, this night you're going to step off the planet into eternity and you are going to stand before me and everything that you have worked so hard to obtain will be left behind and you will profit nothing. That's the message. And Solomon already warned about that, about that didn't he? Proverbs 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Proverbs 11.28, the one who trusts in his riches will fall. That's exactly what this dead man did and great was his fall. And notice the rhetorical question at the end of verse 20. What you have prepared, whose will it be? In other words, everything you've worked so hard for, everything that you have prepared, everything upon which you have banked your life for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction is going to disappear like smoke in the wind and you will lose everything. Now, whether this guy went to heaven or hell is not really the question of the point of the parable, right? So this guy made a tragic miscalculation about the meaning of life and the point of possessions and what it is that does and does not satisfy the soul, and he got all of it wrong. But if you were to push me into a corner, I would say that Christ would be intimating that this is the kind of person who does not have authentic faith. This is not the kind of person who is a believer. And I, and I know that maybe someone could say at this point, well, come on, Jared, I mean, this is just a story. It's just a parable, this is something, that, this is something uh, a little riddle and story for you just to take under consideration. Like the three little pigs. Like the boy who cried wolf. Or is it? Is it that? Because is this not the same tragic tale, the same tragic story that's true about billions and billions of people throughout human history? It totally is. The human race as a whole has followed the exact same deadly path and believed these very same lies for centuries. Lies, what lies? What, what lies did this man believe? 
And are we tempted to believe the lie that the pinnacle of life is found in the enjoyment of luxuries? That's a lie. The lie that life is measured and secured by money and possessions. That's a lie. The lie that what we own actually belongs to us and not to God. The lie that having more and more and more has the power to reach deep enough to fill the chasm of the human soul. That's a lie. The lie that there are objects in the world outside of the living God that can supply a joy that he cannot. Those are lies. All lies. So the question is, do you believe any of those lies this morning? Do, have, you, have you fallen into the snare of the fool? Is the plan of the man in the parable the plan for your life also? Be honest with yourself. Because here's what's so profound about the point of the parable. It's not what you would think. The, the point of the parable is not what you would think because you see, the problem was not that, the man, that being rich was a sin for which the man needed to repent. That's not the point of the parable. The point is that the man wasn't living for eternal riches and reward that could never be dwindled or depleted. That's exactly what Christ says in verse 21. Look at the text. Here's the whole point of the entire parable. He says, so it is. The one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. There it is. Did you hear it? Did you hear that? The aim, the goal, and the very defining purpose of your lives is that you are to be rich towards God. Rich towards God. You can either store up treasures for yourself on earth or you can be rich towards God, which simply means, listen carefully, there is a way to obtain eternal treasure and reward in the life to come, which unlike the treasure here, actually fulfills the longings of the human soul. That's where the guy went wrong. Not that he wanted to be rich. That was not the problem. It's that he was willing to settle for such paltry riches that could not last forever. Now, what that treasure is and how to obtain it, Christ is going to reveal that at the end of a series of pretty provocative implications, which, by the way, leads us finally to the impressive implications. The impressive implications... In fact, there are five implications that he gives us that free us from greed to earn for eternity. And these implications that you're about to see, I believe it or not, have the cure to greed, anxiety, coveting, and fear. These implications, I believe, I truly believe, these can unleash the greatest movement of cheerful giving, treasure-seeking, eternity-investing people this church has ever seen in its history. And so let's look at these one at, a, one at a time. Impressive implication number one. Number one, do not be anxious. God will provide for you. Do not be anxious. God will provide for you. And I want you to notice, I want you to notice the kindness and compassion 
of, of Christ here because he spends most of his time talking about anxiety and fear, which is really interesting. He spends most of his time giving soul-comforting cures to anxiety and fear, which means if you came in today fearful or anxious over money or bills or expenses or retirement or anything else, you're about to walk out of this room a profoundly different person. Look at verses 22 and 23. Five seconds ago, he just finished the parable about the man who had it all and lost it all, and now he looks at his disciples right in the eye and notice what he says. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life, what you should eat, nor for your body, what you should wear, for life, literally the soul, is more than food and the body more than clothing. Isn't that surprising to you? Isn't it surprising to you that the application of the parable is do not be anxious? Because I would have thought that the application of the parable would be do not be greedy. Do not be selfish. Do not covet, or at the very least, be generous. But Christ says the application of the parable is do not be anxious, which means the Lord who knows the souls of men just revealed that the root of greed and coveting and stingy, tight-fisted selfishness is fear. The root of anxiety is fear. Fear and control, it is. Because that's what anxiety over money is. A fear that grips the soul when we trust in our own sufficiency. Anxiety over money is a fear that at root does not trust in the sovereign providence of God who loves his blood-bought people and will provide exactly what they need. I mean, who knew that the real issue with Ebenezer Scrooge was fear? This terror in the soul because he did not trust the sovereign generosity of a father who governs everything that comes to pass. And so the question is this morning, are you anxious this morning? Are you fearful this morning? Are you gripped by fear over money or bills or expenses or savings or retirement or anything else? Because according to Christ, you don't have to be anxious. You must not be anxious, not about what you wear, not about what you eat or anything else for that matter. Why? Verse 23, he says, for life, literally the soul is more than food and the body more than clothing. In other words, there's so much more to life than food in the fridge and clothes in the closet, isn't there? I mean, there, there's something bigger happening in the universe. There is this glorious cosmic plan unfolding in the universe, and there is a glorious sovereign God at the center of that plan, and the point is God will provide what you need to free you up to live your lives, to advance that plan. That's the point. He will provide. He will provide for you. He will. He will do that. And maybe you think, how do you know that? How do you know he's going to provide? 
to truly provide what I actually need? I mean, what is the proof that God is going to do that? And I have two words for you. Ravens and lilies. Birds and flowers. What I mean is, in verses 24 through 28, Christ gives two examples from nature, from creation, on the sovereign providence and, and kindness of God to prove that he can and must be trusted to provide because he can and will provide. Look at verse 24. He says, consider carefully the ravens, that they neither sow nor do they reap, nor do they have storehouses or barns, and yet God feeds them. Isn't that interesting? To, to help counsel and show people over anxiety and fear, he tells us that God himself feeds the ravens. God does that. God does that. And the funny thing about ravens is the Jews hated them. They, they did. According to, according to Leviticus, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, they were dirty, nasty, unclean, despicable birds carriers of disease. These are the crows or the grackles of the ancient world. And yet they don't fear. They don't panic. They don't starve to death precisely because God himself provides for these dirty, brainless little birds. And the punchline is how much more do you matter than birds? You do. You do matter more than birds. You know that, right? You, the crown of creation, sons and daughters of God in his image, washed in the Savior's blood, God, you matter to God. And he will provide every single thing you need. And then look how Christ, the master shepherd of biblical counselor, look how he just reasons with us to be logical, or should I say theological. Look at verse 25. He says, and who of you, by being anxious, is able to add a single hour to his lifespan? Literally, he says, a cubit to his age. In other words, when has being anxious and fearful ever been a benefit to you in the history of your life? That's what he's asking. When has, that ever, when has that ever helped you in the history of your life? Does that help you live longer? Does that make you younger? Does that increase your joy? Does that make you a more pleasant person to live with? No. No. If anything, if anything, fear and anxiety make us take sinfully drastic measures to feel secure, like greed, like hoarding, like gambling, like stealing, like forsaking Sunday morning so that we can make more money. Because, all, because you see, all anxiety over money is, is unbelief rooted in a failure to recognize God for the sovereign, gracious provider that he is. And if we can't do this very little thing, Christ says, notice in verse 26, if we can't even do this very little thing by worrying, verse 26, then why do we worry about the rest? Why do you worry about what you cannot predict and what you cannot control when there is a sovereign God who loves you and rules the universe with ease? Did you know that's the case? There's things you can't control, you can't predict, and what does it matter? Because you have a sovereign God who loves you and rules the universe with ease. 
It's the exact same lesson with the flowers, 26 through 28. I mean, you've heard the expression, stop and smell the roses, right? Christ says, consider carefully the lilies of the field. Or maybe for our context here, take one look at the blue bonnets and the fire wheels and the primroses. I know it's not the season, but you, you get the idea. That grow along the side of the Texas freeway. They don't pay for their garments, as it were. Not a single thread or fabric, piece of fabric is used. There's no dyes or coloring required. They simply grow out of the ground and gleam in the Texas sun. And the point is, if God takes time out of the day to clothe flowers in a field that live for two weeks and die, verse 28, how much more will God clothe you? Aligoi pistoi. You of little faith. Don't you see, don't you see, in his son, the father loves you more than you could possibly imagine, and he will provide every single thing that you need. There's his proof. And what that does, you understand, is free us from greed to earn for eternity. Implication number two. These will be shorter. Implication number two. Do not live like unbelievers. God knows your needs. Do not live like unbelievers. God knows your needs. Look at the command or the prohibition in verse 29. And he says, you do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink and do not be worrying. What does, what does he mean by that? To, to not seek what you should eat or drink. But just starve to death. Don't get a job. Don't earn a living. Just, just, just sit in your house, wait for manna and, and, and quail to drop in your front yard. Is that what he's saying? Of course not. Of course not. He's not saying to shirk your responsibilities. Rather, what he's saying is, get this now, this is so important. He's saying, don't seek after these things as if you don't have a sovereign, gracious father who already wants to give them to you. In other words, don't, don't live like unbelievers. Because think about it, unbelievers are driven by fear, by greed, pride, by manic, panicked, obsessive, mad scramble to find security in the accumulation of possessions. Verse 30, look what it says. All these things the Gentiles of the world seek after, but your father knows that you need them. That's unbelievable. The question is, are you just like the world, gripped by fear, gripped by anxiety, as if your survival was not dependent upon a gracious father who wrote your names in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world? Are you manic, frantic, panicked, and anxious? just like those who have no hope. Beat over money or bills or possessions or COVID or whatever. Don't you see, if 2020 and 2021 prove anything, it is that the world is terrified and panicked and they are precisely because they don't know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now here's your chance. Here now, 
is a golden opportunity to witness to the world, to unbelieving friends, unbelieving family members, people who think Christians out there, and to show them what it is to trust in a sovereign, gracious God who governs everything that comes to pass. That there is a God who knows, a God who cares, and a God who in his son fulfills the deepest cravings of the soul. Implication number three. Impressive implication number three. Prioritize the kingdom and you'll get exactly what you need. Prioritize the kingdom and you will get exactly what you need. Because you see, Christ is not merely interested in what you should stay away from, but what you should pursue after, what you should be striving for. And what that is, is the kingdom itself. Look at verse 31. He says, however, or only, or rather seek, literally be seeking his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. What does that mean? What does that mean to seek his kingdom? Well, it very simply means that your lives are to be prioritized around his kingdom cause. All of your money, all of your time, all of your possessions, all of your passions, all of your priorities, all of them are to be prioritized around his kingdom cause, which means you make known its future arrival to everyone on earth now and try to get as many people into that kingdom. And the punchline is, what he's saying is, is that when we do that, notice, God will provide everything that you need. You prioritize the kingdom and God will provide exactly what you need. Not to increase your standard of living necessarily, but to increase your standard of giving to his kingdom cause. Impressive implication number four. Number four, we're almost done. Do not fear, the kingdom is already yours. Do not fear, the kingdom is already yours, which is precisely what he says in verse 32. Look at the text. Do not fear. Listen to the tenderness in what he says. Do not fear, little flock, because the Father was well pleased to give you the kingdom. It's yours. You have it. It belongs to you irrevocably. No, it's not here yet. But when it will be, when it is here in that day, we will reign as kings and queens under King Jesus, just like we were created to from the beginning. And you see, that coming kingdom is very, very practical for us. Listen carefully, because it very simply means that anything that we lose or suffer or sacrifice for the sake of Christ will be repaid 10,000 times over when the kingdom comes. Do you see? We can be radically generous in this life with everything that we own. Because in one sense, in a way, we get it all back in the end. Impressive implication number five. Number five, be generous and gain eternal reward. Be generous and gain eternal reward. And here now, here now, Christ tells us how to be rich towards God. Here is how it happens. Here is how it works. Here's how to be rich towards God. It deserves its own sermon. I give you two minutes. Verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. 
Make for yourselves money bags that do not grow old, an eternal treasure in heaven. Do you see what he's saying? Where thief does not come near, where moth does not destroy, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, do you, do you hear what he just said? It is so shocking. And most Christians, when they hear stuff like this, they are tempted to not believe what the text says. And yet, there it lies in the text, like landmines of joy, just waiting to be stepped on. Namely, that how you use what God provides in this life has the potential to produce eternal treasure and reward in the age to come. Isn't that what he just said? That is exactly what he just said. That generosity for his glory is touched with immortality. That we store up eternal treasures in the coming age by giving away temporary treasures in the present age. That we give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. Christ is not even joking with us. Through joyful generosity of what God provides, we obtain eternal treasures in the age to come that can never be dwindled or depleted. And that through glad-hearted generosity, we increase our equity and capital and assets and savings, not for this life necessarily, but definitely, definitely for the life to come. That right there is called kingdom economics. Let's learn that economics well. Let's pray. Oh Lord, when I read this text, what I see is that I need faith. Faith to believe that you will do as you say. Faith to believe that what I obtain, what I own, is not really mine. It is yours. Faith to believe that pinnacle of life is not to enjoy luxuries. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would free us. Free us to be a people who see that we have nothing to lose in, in being a radically generous people because you, have already, you are already well pleased to give to us the kingdom. That you will supply, you will provide everything we need to advance your kingdom cause now, and you will supply everything we need in the life to come. And so I pray for this precious flock. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would make them a people of great faith, O oh Lord, because, Lord, what we know, what faith does not mean is risk. O oh Lord, faith is to take you at your word. Give us the courage to take you at your word. Make us new reformers who take you at your word. And we trust you to provide what we need to do what you command and to live in a way that puts your eternal worth and glory on open display. And it's in your son's mighty and matchless name that we pray.